Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a new podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, we are going to talk about the emotional roller coaster of the last few months. So in April, Donald Trump sat down in front of the TV cameras and announced a special investigation into whether imports of steel were threatening American national security. Days later, there was another investigation into imports of aluminium. For us trade economists, these two announcements were a red flag. Yes, the Trump administration had identified something wrong going on out there in the global economy but the way they were going about solving it was extremely risky. This law they were using handed over huge power to the president to allow him to do pretty much whatever he wanted. We didn't know if that meant he was going to use tariffs or quotas or something else entirely, and we had no idea how trading partners were going to respond. So we waited on the edge of our seats for Steel Week to arrive and for President Trump to announce what it was ultimately that he was going to do. Okay, so for months, I was poised to change my job title from trade correspondent to war correspondent. I have lost count of the number of times I promised my editors that this week is Steel Week. And and as we record this, Steel Week has not yet come. Not yet. So what what we're going to do is we're going to tell the Steel story. The Steel story, so far at least, of how and why Steel Week hasn't yet come. And we're also going to try to explain why that might be actually a very, very good thing. Though I should add the caveat that the minute after we put this episode online, Trump may decide to whack 5 bajillion percent tariffs on steel. If that does happen, then don't worry, this episode will still be 100% useful and relevant, but we'll just have to record another episode explaining what's going to happen. First, some context. So steel isn't just any old industry. It's massively historically important to you know the American nation. It is used for building cities, transport networks. According to the American Iron and Steel Institute, it employs around 140,000 people directly. But most importantly for this discussion, it is an industry with a long history of asking for protection from foreign competition. Since at least the 1960s, it has claimed that it needs things like tariffs to protect it from foreign competitors who are being unfairly subsidized. So back in June of 2016, presidential candidate Trump gave a speech. He said, when subsidized foreign steel is dumped into our markets, threatening our factories, the politicians do nothing. And I apologize for that half-hearted attempt at a Trump impersonation. Okay, so Chad, had the president identified a real problem? Is unfairly subsidized foreign steel being dumped into American markets? So yes, in this case, President Trump is onto something. So what's basically happened here is over the last 15 to 20 years or so, China has created a global problem for the steel market. As late as 2005, they only produced about a third of the world's steel. By now, they're up to producing, or they have the capacity to produce about half the world's steel. So this was clearly part of their growth model. As they were moving people out of rural areas and into cities, they needed to build new apartment buildings and roads and bridges. You need a lot of steel for that kind of stuff. The problem is that their steel is subsidized. It's produced through state-owned enterprises or unfairly subsidized cheap loans and energy. And so the concern is that China isn't really acting like a market economy when it produces steel. Over the last couple of years, as their economy has started to slow down, remember, they're, they're shifting to a new growth model. They're, they're doing less manufacturing, more services. They're moving less of these people into the cities. They need less of this steel. 
So instead of producing less, they're producing about the same amount, they're demanding less at home, they're exporting the excess onto world markets. And that's sort of driving down the world price of steel. Okay, so let's just think through why this would be a problem for America. I guess on the one hand, the Americans get cheaply subsidized steel, so that's great. But I suppose a subsidy is a distortion to prices, so as card-carrying economists, we should be skeptical of that. And the Trump administration is worried on two counts. First of all, that these steel companies, American steel companies, are being battered by, by foreign competition. There are a lot of people f- who used to be in the steel industry who are now in the Trump administration. So that's something that they'll be acutely aware of. But also, fundamentally, if excess capacity in China is depressing prices, then that hits American jobs. And we all know how much the president likes American jobs. I think there is a question, though, about how many jobs are being impacted. We do have economic research now that's come out over the last five or six years to show that, yes, American workers in certain communities and in certain types of jobs have been adversely affected by international trade. But in the steel industry, it's a lot more complicated than that. The decline in jobs in the steel industry in the United States really dates back to the 19. 70s and 1980s, long before China came on the scene, and is also partially due to new technologies. The industry has just become much more productive over time. There's been a five-fold increase in productivity, according to the American Iron and Steel Institute. And so what that means is you're producing much more steel in the United States, just with many fewer people. I wrote a piece about the aluminum industry, and I went to visit a factory um, in Kentucky, and certainly the workers there even though you could see it, you could see automation just meant that they needed fewer people to produce the same amount of aluminium. When the Trump administration uh, announced the 232, everyone was super excited. Apparently, their phones all started buzzing. They were saying, you know, finally, uh, someone's doing something about this because their smelter was operating, at, I think, something like 40% capacity, which had closed off capacity after this huge drop in prices last year. There's this big question about technology and trade, but there are lots of people within these industries who definitely feel that trade has been a big factor, even though over the long run, I think clearly technology is the bigger force. And I think more generally, this this isn't something that the Trump administration has just dreamed up. Everyone agrees that overcapacity is a problem. The Obama administration thought it was a problem. This is a bipartisan issue. Other governments, the Europeans, have been, been talking about it too. And even the Chinese government itself, they acknowledge that this is something that they really need to tackle. Okay, so picture the scene then. Let's establish this. Having identified a real problem, the Trump administration comes into office. They run around, but as the 100-day point approaches. And again, in the United States, the 100-day marker is a very important political moment for evaluating just how much a presidency has accomplished. By that point in time, the president hadn't accomplished much in other areas of his agenda, nothing on health care, tax reform. So they were looking to do something. So what they did was to announce, we're going to do an investigation. We're going to investigate steel and whether imports of steel are a threat to U.S. national security. And watching this, this was a, a pretty big moment as as trade correspondent. I was like, you know, this is it. This is where the drama the drama starts. And Trump seems 
ready to act. So this is a report. He's directing his government minions to look into whether steel imports are affecting national security. And on May 27th, he tweets that he's looking forward to reading the Commerce Department's analysis to be released in June. And he says, we'll take major action if necessary. Now, it seemed reasonable to worry that the world was about to descend into some kind of tariff trade war. And that was alarming, exciting, lots of emotions. But Chad, what was your main concern? So my main concern dates back even earlier. So when President Trump made the announcement back in April, he said he was using this national security law, something called Section 232 of the Trade Act of 1962. Okay, so I said to myself, what is Section 232 of the Trade Act of 1962? So I had to go and look it up. Chad, no, you should never admit this. This was, you know, this was taught to you in, in nursery books when you were a child. This yeah. is all tattooed on your memory. Yeah, that's right. Not quite, unfortunately. So I went and looked it up, and it turns out that this particular law hasn't been triggered at all since 2001, but really hasn't been used in the United States that much at all. There were 13 or 14 investigations under this law since 1980, and that's very, very few. In comparison, under other laws, there are you know thousands of, of other unfair trade cases. So this is just a rarely used law, and nobody had any, any idea what would happen under it. Maybe just to give listeners some context, at the moment, the rules of the global trading system are defined at the World Trade Organization, the WTO. And they generally say everyone's agreed these tariffs, but there are certain circumstances under which you are allowed to impose these emergency trade restrictions. And national security is one of them. So maybe Trump was just just using that. Maybe that was fine. Maybe, but it raised a big red flag for me. So I think it's it's a big deal using this national security exception and, and how people have subsequently re- referred to it as the nuclear option of all trade policy measures. Why? Why is that? Well, I think the argument I like to think about it is is this. So remember when you were a kid and you wanted to have ice cream before dinner and your parents would say to you, no, you can't have ice cream before dinner. And you would ask why? Why can't I have ice cream before dinner? And they would throw up their hands and said, because I said so. Well, this national security argument for trade restrictions is basically the because I said so argument. You really can't argue against it. And that's what makes it worrisome for WTO watchers. If President Trump says that he's going to impose import restrictions for steel because he said so, what's to stop any other country from doing the same thing? China, for example, imports $14 billion a year worth of soybeans from the United States. What's to stop them from saying, that's a threat to our national security? Why? Because I said so. And you can see how this has the possibility of unraveling a rules-based trading system. I guess they'll know that it would just look really, really bad for the World Trade Organization to say, no, we've we've assessed that it's not actually on the grounds of your national security, because it would just look terrible for international lawyers to be making judgments about what's okay for for a country's defense. And then once you've opened that Pandora's box, it's anything goes. I think compared to you, Chad, I'm a little bit more optimistic in that I think probably the global trading system is a bit more resilient than you're giving it credit for. So I think there would have to be real demand from other countries for everyone to follow suit and and start issuing trade protections on national security grounds. I just don't see the EU saying, yeah, we're going to block block imports from the US because of national security. And I, th- I think that's what you need for everything to descend into chaos. 
Just your way. But I do... <laughs> just do it. Okay, fine. Well, I guess we'll see. Uh, but I do agree that it does set a bad precedent. If you were a fan of the WTO and Chad, I, I don't think I'm talking out of turn when I say that you are. <laughs> then I can see how this would be very, very worrying. Okay, but setting the rules-based international trading system aside, I think the most exciting thing for people, or you know, at least my editors, was was maybe Trump was about to whack a mar- massive tariff on steel imports, and we were going to get you know, some kind of retaliation, a trade war. So on just on those grounds, on that question alone, would it have helped? Would a steel restriction have done anything to solve this problem of Chinese overcapacity? Who would have hit? I would argue no. And that's part of, you know, the, the main concern with the Trump administration's approach. Over the last 15 years, the United States has already used different types of trade policies to stop imports of steel from China from coming in, policies like anti-dumping, countervailing duties. And what that has meant is we don't import a lot of steel from China. Okay, so at the beginning when Trump was saying politicians do nothing, he wasn't quite right because the Obama administration had already imposed loads of restrictions on Chinese imports of steel. There had been action on this already. Yeah, that's right. Not only Obama, but but Bush and Clinton before that. And so if you look at the data today, I went and looked this up. The Department of Commerce reports that only 4% of U.S. imports of steel come from China. The U.S. imports most of its steel from countries like Canada and Mexico and Japan, Korea, Europe. If the Trump administration was going to impose new trade barriers, those were the countries that were going to get hit, these friends and allies of the United States and not this national security threat of China. I suppose the concern would be if the Trump administration put tariffs on steel coming in from Europe and then the Europeans said, oh, okay, enough, we're going to impose restrictions on the Chinese and you just get this kind of cascade of, of protection and then everyone's annoyed at everyone else. Exactly. Okay. Without, without, the, without the actual underlying problem, it all being solved. That's exactly right. Okay. So back to the drama of the last few months. So we were just sitting here waiting for this report to be to be filed and then the president do whatever he was going to do. So there were rumors swirling around. Maybe it was going to be a tariff. Uh, maybe it was going to be a quota, some kind of quantity restriction. Maybe it was going to be some kind of combination of the two. We still don't know. And meanwhile, people were getting really worried. So trade restrictions hurt people and not just the people that America is importing from. Steel is an input. And when it gets more expensive, that hurts the companies who use it. So that hurts car manufacturers and people making food equipment and cans and gears and pipes. And it it took them a little while to get their act together. But eventually the steel consumers did. Um, And on September 7th, they sent this letter saying that if the Trump administration imposes trade restrictions, then that will put one million steel using jobs at risk, with a caveat that at risk is a vague statement. Clearly, one million jobs wouldn't be lost. But the point that they were making was that the number of jobs indirectly supported by low steel prices is much greater than the number of jobs directly in the steel industry. There's a second point, which is that cheap steel is good for consumers of steel. That includes things like the American government. So even though there are rules on the American government has to buy steel made in America, the price of international steel does feed into those prices of American made steel. And so if America starts blocking 
foreign steel, effectively making its own steel more expensive, then that means the prices of bridges, airports and railways goes up. There's going to be a major rebuilding going on in places like Houston and Florida after tens of billions of dollars in damage was caused by hurricanes Harvey and Irma. Effectively, by restricting cheap stuff from coming into your country, you're making it harder to do that rebuilding effort. The other thing I want to say is that there was divergence within the steel sector. So I say the steel sector. There are different parts of the steel sector. On the one hand, you've got these older producers, and they may be slightly less efficient, maybe slightly less automated. And then you've got these higher tech uh, companies, and they're actually saying, uh, you know what, we, we wouldn't mind a bit of competition to, you know, I think, I'm not sure they'll say this publicly, but, you know, some competition to flush out their creaky competitors might not be such a bad thing for them. <laughs> but definitely you have steel companies going on the record saying, hey, we don't, we don't want this protection. This isn't actually in our interest. Yes. So you've got all of those costs to the U.S. economy on, on one side. And I think those voices are, are starting to get heard throughout this process as this drama is playing out. Aside from that, though, you also have the international drama. In June, and this was fascinating, Sean Donnan at the Financial Times made a, a number of, of interesting stories on this. The NATO generals from Europe sent messages to President Trump saying, hey, Think twice about these steel import restrictions. This could actually imperil relations militarily between the United States and Europe. In July, the EU started to make actual explicit retaliation threats. If, President Trump, you impose these import restrictions, this is how we're going to hit you back. And so they mentioned in particular imposing tariffs on bourbon from Kentucky, which is Senator Mitch McConnell's home state, dairy products from Wisconsin, which is uh, Paul Ryan's home state, Florida orange juice. Now, it's useful to play all of this out for President Trump because if he ultimately imposes these kinds of import restrictions, it's important to identify what the costs of those actions are going to be. And so these explicit retaliation threats that the Europeans were making identified to him, hey, this is what the costs of your policies are actually likely to be. Okay, so I think we've identified all the people who were, were worried and who would lose out from trade restrictions and steel. Chad, if the Trump administration shouldn't impose unilateral restrictions, what should they do? Well, the first thing I should say that they should do is to actually use the World Trade Organization, the WTO. So file a trade dispute. And in the aluminum sector, this is what the Obama administration did. One of their last actions before heading out the door was to file a new WTO dispute against China over these claims of overcapacity in the aluminum sector, government subsidies. And so that's a similar kind of action could, could definitely be done in the steel sector. Okay, so surprise, surprise, goody two-shoes Chad loves the WTO, says, you know, we need to solve this the good way. Go to the teacher, say China broke the rules and, and, and let, us, let us retaliate. I think in the Trump administration's defense, that could be quite slow. So okay. is, there, is there anything else they All right. could do? Yes. So in addition to that... What ultimately you want to do here is to try to get China to reduce its capacity. So there is this alternative forum that's been set up under the OECD to try to get talks and discussions going there. The concern, though, is that if President Trump had actually imposed import restrictions, trade barriers on all of the Americans, friends and allies, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Koreans, all the countries that you also need to be putting pressure on China at this OECD forum, they might not be willing to do so any longer. And that's the putting the, that whole system at risk by acting unilaterally is, is what I was really concerned about. If the Trump administration was playing by the Chad rulebook, then they would go to the World Trade Organization or they would push harder at the OECD steel 
forum. So I looked at the statement that the G20 released in July saying that they would urgently call for the removal of market distorting subsidies and that they were looking forward to a substantive report with concrete policy solutions. This sounds a lot like a talking shop. I kind of see the Trump administration's logic. You know, maybe what they're trying to do is they're trying to wave this big stick of trade restrictions because all these friendly guys over there who are trying to agree and play along nicely are just not achieving anything. So by Trump threatening, if you don't lower your capacity, I'm going to hit you with my trade restrictions, then that might actually spur some action. I mean, this could be some pretty clever politics. Maybe. But this is where the story gets a little bit weird. About a week after the G20 meeting, it was later reported in the Financial Times that apparently the Chinese offered to do a bilateral deal with the United States where they would actually cut their capacity. So in this comprehensive economic dialogue that was part of the 100-day talks between uh, President Xi and, and, and President Trump, they made an offer to cut capacity. Now, there's some question as to whether there was actually anything new in this offer or they were just simply going to follow through with earlier promises to cut capacity, but at least they were heading in the right direction. So according to the Financial Times, at least, what happened in this instance is Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Department secretary, liked the idea of this deal, and he took the plans of the deal to President Trump, but President Trump threw up his hands and rejected it. Yeah, I don't really get this. It doesn't really seem clear to me why he's threatening all this stuff unless he wants that outcome, unless he wants them to cut their capacity it's, it's almost like he just wants tariffs to look tough, to show that he's doing something rather than actually solving the root problem. Almost. Hmm. OK, so, Chad, where are we now? For now, it looks like the steel war has been postponed, at least until President Trump gets further along with the rest of his legislative agenda. In an interview with The Wall Street Journal at the end of July, he said that steel was going to come, but would only come after healthcare reform, tax reform, and maybe even infrastructure. I should point out that other things haven't been standing still. So after this investigation was announced, steel share prices rose a lot, right? So they were clearly excited about this. It was, they were hoping that they would benefit, or the markets thought they would at least. But also imports have been rising pretty quickly over the first half of this year, many from places like Taiwan and Turkey. Lots of people are still calling for action on this thing. So even though it's been quiet, there's still pressure. It's not like everyone outside the administration is united against these restrictions. So watch this space. The other thing I should say is that a lot of this story is US-focused. What should America do to force the Chinese to cut its capacity? But so a colleague of mine, Simon Rabinovich, who covers China for The Economist, he has been looking into this issue of steel capacity. And it turns out that the Chinese have been making moves to try to cut. Prices have been rising. They are aiming to cut capacity by 20% of its output in 2016 by 2020. So that is massive. That is That cut is equivalent to 15 times the capacity of Britain. That's huge. There are some questions. The Chinese have promised that they'll do this a lot, but the markets do seem to be believing them. So for now, at least, it looks like 
action is happening. There are questions about whether they're actually cutting capacity or just replacing it with more efficient capacity. But at least it does show that they are willing to an extent to you know bite the bullet and accept job losses because that was the really difficult thing for them. The reason that they wouldn't want to cut capacity is that that would mean that everyone who was working in those steel jobs would lose their jobs. And you know if it's difficult for the Trump administration to lose jobs, it's also difficult for the Chinese authorities to lose jobs, particularly since it's in their election season. They really don't want political unrest. But I think the bigger point is that it's just not it's also not in their best interests to have huge steel capacity and have loads and loads of really inefficient steel producing companies. And so for now, it looks like maybe that concern is outweighing the concern about jobs. Though all that being said, I think there are still reasons to worry. And as Simon and others have, have explained, what China is doing isn't actually addressing the underlying problem, which is that these decisions about whether or not to cut capacity aren't being made by markets in China, they're being made by the government. And ultimately, it would be better if they were letting this happen organically, so that when prices were falling, it was actually firms being allowed to fall into bankruptcy, workers being allowed to be laid off and fold, like is what happens in other countries. But we're not there yet simply with China. It's still cutting by diktat, doing it through the role of the state. In summary, the underlying problem, which is China's weird economy has a tendency to just produce too much stuff, is still there. The Trump administration might yet whack on trade restrictions, even with all the problems that that would create. So another happy week for trade watchers. Wouldn't everything just be so much better if we could all play along nicely in the sandbox? Wouldn't it indeed. Just before we go, I would like to thank my colleagues, Simon Rabinovich, who is a China expert extraordinaire, and Charles Reed, who is a steel know-it-all. They've both been hugely helpful. And also, I think I should do a massive shout out to Sean Donnan at the FT, who's right. been doing the amazing steel reporting that has caused many a frantic email between Chad and myself. Okay, so that's all from Trade Talks please do leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really appreciate it. If you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then please do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes on Twitter. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores. So at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to national security, one Section 232 investigation just wasn't enough. Chad, that, that doesn't even make sense. What? Oh wait, I get it. One of the one of the secu- one is aluminium and one is steel. Yeah. Dude, it or makes, aluminum, as you you yeah. weirdos call it. It makes complete right. sense. Yeah. <laughs>